It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. When 13 British colonies declared their independence from the British government in 1776, they had no clear vision about what they would do once the apparent shackles of the British monarchy were shattered. What did it mean for them to create a new nation? It's a complicated and fascinating story, actually, a story that resonates all the way up to the present time today, when Americans are still divided over what exactly this new nation is. Professor Benjamin E. Park joins us in this episode to talk about competing notions of American nationalism. Dr. Park recently published a book on the subject, and now he's working on a new project about the Latter-day Saint city of Nauvoo, Illinois, where questions of nationalism led to conflict and even bloodshed. It's Benjamin Park talking about American nationalisms on this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. You can send questions or comments about this and other episodes to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. And stick around after the interview to hear our review of the month. Benjamin Park joins us today. Welcome, Ben. It's nice to have you here at the Institute. It's a privilege. And you're here this summer. You're working on a book about Nauvoo. Is that right? That is correct. I have the time and space to work on a project that I hope to finish by this fall. We'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of the interview because the book that you recently published, American Nationalisms, really sets the stage for, I think, what you're going to do in the Nauvoo book. So let's give people a sense for what American nationalisms is about. There's this moment in the musical Hamilton where King George is talking to the newly free Americans, and he's telling them, you'll be back. You're going to come crawling back to me. Your experiment will be a failure. It's this great moment. You'll be back. Soon you'll see. you remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell you remember that I served you well Oceans rise, empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion To remind you of my love Da-da-da-da-da and King George, he gets some of the biggest laughs in the whole musical, but I think in reality, the sentiment in that song is based in some things that people were actually saying at the time about whether or not this experiment would be successful. I'm thinking about people like Josiah Tucker. So after Americans won the war, what kind of doubts were people expressing? While I'm disappointed, Blair, that you didn't wrap that uh, opening question, yeah. drawing yeah. off of Hamilton, <laughs> I, I will still answer it regardless. I think we, speaking from 2018, see America's success as a predetermined conclusion, something that, of course, it was going to happen. And that was far from assured in 1783. In fact, at Sam Houston State University, where I teach, uh, uh, one of the courses I teach is on colonial America. America. And oddly enough, the Colonial America course ends at 1783, which is an, is an odd date because America is a nation then. But I love to frame it that way because in 1783, yes, America had won the American Revolution, but America's future was less secured in 1783 than it had ever been in our history. We had racked up international debts. We had questionable borders, uh, Native Americans in the West and the, and the Spanish in the South were pushing against where American territories were. And American states, to, to get to the point of my book, these newfound American states were starting to question, well, now that we no longer have a common foe and know that we're no longer part of this broader international empire that was the British Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. 
what do we have that joins us together? What is it that makes us American? And, and people were genuinely worried that maybe we don't have things that hold us together. I mean, we're just 13 former colonies of the, of, of the British who uh, prior to 1776, the only thing that we held in common was an allegiance to the same crown. And then after 1776, we just shared a common enemy. And what holds us together now? I think sometimes we forget that these 13 colonies that secede from Britain were just 13 of, depending on how you count it, 26 British colonies in the Western Hemisphere. There's, there's nothing that predetermined these specific 13 carving off and, and making a, a new nation. And yet here they were. And there's lots of anxiety over that. What holds what do we hold in common? Do we trust these other states? In fact, there's there's a strong sentiment uh, that from either South Carolina or up in New York that, you know what, maybe I don't trust these people coming from these different states. John Adams, when he gathered for the First Continental Congress during the American Revolution, said that the delegates coming from these different colonies interacted with each other as if they were delegates from foreign nations. They shared different interests. They had different expectations. And so... There was a, a genuine question of, of could this nation hold together? Because back then, to a lot of people, in a nation meant a group of people who shared things in common. Like, I mean, think about uh, how we use the, the term in, in some ways today where we talk about the nation of Islam or the Cherokee nation. Right, groups of people who share a language, a background, a religion, a, a race. Um, did early Americans have enough to share to make comprise a nation? It was an open question. Yeah, you talk about how scholars have differentiated between cultural nationalism and ethnic nationalism, and right. I think that kind of gets at some of that. So onlookers were, and people within these 13 colonies, were looking at this experiment with really big question marks. And throughout the book, you keep zooming out sometimes to the broader Atlantic world. So first of all, dis define for people who aren't specialists what that Atlantic world was and give us a sense for how America fit into that bigger picture right at the beginning. Yeah. Americans today, because we are often egotists, and I speak from personal <laughs> experience, we think we invent a lot of things that haven't been in existence before. We like to think that we invented the idea that we live in an international age that we are connected to other nations, that we're not just confined by the parochial boundaries of, of our nation. That couldn't be further from the truth because back in early America, they saw themselves as connected to all these nations. So the Atlantic world is kind of this, this shorthand for this exchange between various nations that crisscross the Atlantic Ocean, whether it be the colonies in North America, the, the colonies in South America, both of these colonial projects of European empires and as well as indigenous populations pushing back against those colonial projects. Then in Europe, you have the various European uh, empires and then you have have in, in Africa, the, these African nations that are participating both through core slave trade as well as uh, free market trade. Uh, and, and so you get many of these people firmly understanding that our nation only exists as it relates to these foreign countries. I mean, you think about the Declaration of Independence itself. When the Declaration of Independence was, was drafted in July of 1776, America had been at war for a year. That wasn't commencing a new conflict. What it was doing was requesting foreign nations to acknowledge the conflict currently in place. 
So this Atlantic world then was kind of a validating structure. Americans, especially American politicians, recognize that our actions only mean something when it's reflected in these four nations. There's something that you say about nation and nationalism, the idea that a nation is an essentially contested idea. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so... The American Revolution took place at the cusp of what's called as the dawn of nationalisms, meaning people understanding nations, countries, governments in new ways. Prior to the 18th century, most countries or empires or nations would define a nation or a government as, as a divinely appointed structure that people were created to fit into. Like the king was literally right, set right. by God to be the king and so exactly. on and so forth. And what is in place is what is supposed to be in place. Whereas in the 18th century, you get a growing conception that governments and nations and, and unions and these political structures are man-made. They're socially constructed. That humanity and society existed before the nation and therefore, you can see the logic moving toward the American Revolution. If a nation or an empire is no longer respecting the natural rights that preceded it, you have the power to overthrow it. And so the American Revolution was an example of us saying this, this empire is not divinely appointed. It was appointed by man. And now that it's not following our expectations, we can overthrow it and create something new. So, And that transforms how people view the nations because now the nation is something that's in the sphere where humans can adapt, modify, uh, observe. And so by nationalism, they are projecting what the nation should mean. And they have, even within a nation, there will be contesting ideas. Right. This is one of the biggest themes of your book is that it's essentially contested even within particular nations themselves, not just between right. nations, as you say, they define themselves against and with other nations, but also within those nations, there are competing ideas about what nation is. Right. If you are, you, if you're used to a certain certain thing of how people govern, you are going to project those ideas onto the nation. And those aren't going to be the only projections. There are going to be other people. And so now you're, you're competing over what this nation really means. And I mean, th this lives on till today to where, if Blair, if you and I had a severe disagreement over politics, and I thought what you were saying was heretical, I wouldn't just say your political ideas are wrong. I would say they're un-American. Yeah, right. <laughs> because they don't match the priorities and values that I think are inherent within the country. Yeah, and that's a great way to end an argument and yeah. not even get to discuss it, right? And 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 many sides can do that by exactly. by, by assuming what American means and then right. arguing from there. And we see that all the way back to the very beginning exactly. when you're trying to construct what American means. Exactly. Do you think they were a little bit more aware that they were doing that back then, though? I mean, there's a sense, in, and, and we'll get more into this about defining a national character, but was there any deliberate political calculation of knowing, okay, look, I'm going to say what America is, but I know this is sort of an act of imagination right now. Uh, it was, but I think we also need to note that there was a, what scholars call a fractured print culture, meaning that if you lived in New England, there is a good chance you honestly did not know what life was like in South Carolina. Yeah. You had how, a better How could I? Yeah, you had a better understanding of what was taking place in London than you did in Charleston because that's just how information flowed. Now, of course, 
within Boston, there would be differences and political differences. So people would paper over those. But there is also a, a, a genuine ignorance. So there's both a genuine and a conscious hmm. uh, act of ignorance here in projecting my values, my interests, my ideas onto the nation while uh, I- ignoring others. Hmm. That's Benjamin Park. He's assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. And we're talking about his book, American Nationalisms, Imagining Union in the Age of Revolutions. And it also spans, this is part of the title. These, these titles are great. They're always... A lot of information in all of our titles, 1783 to 1833. So you're looking kind of at the beginning of the American project as a political entity and up to 1833. So you don't get to the Civil War. You're you're before that. And your book's a really good reminder that during this period as the United States was taking shape, it was already made up of different regions with really different priorities and expectations. As you just mentioned, someone in Boston might not know what was going on south of them. And you single out three states in your book in particular. You're talking about Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, because you want to show that there's not a neat and tidy single story of the founding of America. Instead, it was this mess of competition. And so many Americans at the time then believed that the first order of business was to define national character. We've talked a little bit about that already, but talk about why that is and what they were doing. I'm thinking of like Noah Webster and James Madison, people like this. Yeah, so now National character. Character is what you assume the the primary values of a person would be. Like, th- think about uh, growing up in an LDS tradition. You often hear, "What are the care? What what are your character traits? Your character traits define you." And many people during this, uh, just after America declares independence and becomes a, its own sovereign nation, declare that America is only going to work when we share a national character. That a nation is predicated on people sharing these particular values. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart, especially given that we are now in this new experiment called a democracy, where popular rule is going to rule. And if popular rule is going to be the dominant factor, then we better make sure the general population holds things in common or else you're going to have groups who aren't reflected in these national decisions. And so they argue that we need to install a national character. Uh, You mentioned Noah Webster, an early American um, newspaper editor and more famously known as for the Webster's Dictionary. Famous Dictionaryist. Right, Dictionaryist. Which, I mean, the fact that he wrote an American dictionary showed that he believes America should hold language in common. And so he's writing frequently during the 1780s of all the problems that America is facing, and America is facing tons of problems in the early and mid-1780s, is because we don't have a national character, something that holds us together. You mentioned James Madison, the author of the Constitution. When he's out defending the Constitution in the Federalist Papers, he's saying that one of the great virtues of the American Constitution is it's going to grant us a national character. What the Constitution was is going to regenerate society in such a way that everyone is going to be seeing things the same way and we're going to have a shared character which is going to allow us to be a successful nation. What kind of characteristics were people saying the American national character was? Well, for James Madison and others, this character, because they supported the Constitution, means first and foremost you're going to believe in federal sovereignty. It also means you're going to believe in order. It means you're going to believe in obedience. It means you're going to believe in respect for authority figures. And so what the American Constitution did is it brought all the anarchic aspects of democracy and was able to funnel it through a structure of order. 
And so that's what they believed the character of America was going to be. People willing to work with one another under the auspices of this federal government. And how about things like character traits like hard work ethic and right. like stuff like this? And how did religious ideas play into that? Right, exactly. They believed that all of these things needed to work in orchestra, that, that they needed to fit together in order to mold what makes an American citizen, which in turn this American citizen is going to prop up the American government. So the Constitution was just one aspect of that. They also pushed for a national university. This idea that we need to have the same education throughout, kind of a precursor to debates today over the common core, right? That, that if we're going to be a united people, we need to have a united education. We also need to have a united religion, maybe not in denomination, but at least in religious principles that we can hold in common or else we're not going to see ourselves reflected in each other. And therefore, as a nation, we're going to crumble. And religion would help be a sort of glue to prevent criminal activity or sort of, you know, uphold more moral exactly issues as well. So even if we don't have an established church, we're going to have shared religious principles that, that are going to drive us together. And your first chapter on the Articles of Confederation and the Constitutional Convention sort of shows these debates and how people believe that when their statecraft either assumes or seeks to construct a sense of peoplehood is how you put it. And so in those original discussions, how did it shake out in terms of, okay, this group of people, what holds us together? Are we a loose confederation of local sovereigns who, who have power locally, or is each state part of this central body? How did this debate play out in the three states that you studied in this book? Yeah, well, you see a lot of diversity. In Massachusetts, for instance, they're used to um, a structure of town-based control, where at the one hand, you would think that would push for local sovereignty, but at the same time, they believe it's okay to determine specific people to make authoritative decisions, and then everyone work within that structure. South Carolina, where they don't have these town structures, everything's more at the county level and the local rural uh, communities, they, they have a distrust for, uh, for centralizing authority. Um, they start to worry that if too much power is correlated in one place, that, that that's not going to lead to uh, a lot of support. They eventually get over this for, for other reasons, and the kind of states' rights-based arguments that you see in the 1830s uh, don't crop up later. But those seeds are already planted. And then in Pennsylvania, due to Pennsylvania's social background, where they had a, a, a melting pot of, of different cultures and communities, they believe— yeah, it makes sense that we can have lots of people under one federal umbrella and still have all our interests and rights represented because that's what we've been doing in Pennsylvania for a century. Yeah, they felt like they were sort of setting setting the uh, example that, right. that could be replicated. So as people go through this book, they're going to see how these localities are coming together to try to make an arrangement with each other, but they're coming from different, they're bringing expectations of different local contexts and right. how those local contexts play out in national debates of constructing the nation. In chapter two, uh, you say that by and large, religion was what framed how Anglo-Americans in the 18th century understood to be their world. Like religion was the lens through which so many people saw the world. But you also say that the actual role of religion in early America is still being debated by historians. So pretty much everybody agrees religion was a big deal, but what that role of religion was is kind of up for grabs among scholars. Right. What does the debate look like there? Yeah, so when America becomes independent, there was a genuine question, okay, what 
role does religion play in this new government? And there are various models at their disposal. England had a church. A England state had church. an established church. Yeah. You had the Church of England. And the Church of England was the most common church in many of the colonies that became United States. Those who wanted an established national church, and there were some who would have fought for this, quickly recognized that that would be impossible in America because every state had a different religious tradition. And so pluralism already existed. Yeah, that was just a reality that they're going to have to deal with. All right. So that's out of the question. But the next model that that we could see as, as maybe a more traditional model is, okay, why don't we just establish religion at the state level? And every state can determine what their official designated church will be and will tolerate other religions. This is where the idea of religious toleration will tolerate these other religions. But we're still going to privilege one over the others. With taxes. Or yeah, with, with ta- yeah. tax exemption as well as tax support. They have roles at public functions. And several states take this option. I think we sometimes forget when we talk about America establishing religious liberty that Massachusetts hasn't established religion until 1833. I mean, that's that's a lot later than we typically think. So Massachusetts is directing tax money to specific congregations for five decades after the American Revolution ends. Now, that's one model. Another model was religious liberty, and that's kind of championed in in more uh, uh, radical, as we'd say, states like Virginia, where you have both religious skeptics like Thomas Jefferson, who doubted uh, traditional religious beliefs uh, and especially had distrusted religious leaders, and groups like the Baptists, who were devout religionists, but who did not like the Anglican Church dominating. And they were in minority. Yeah, they're yeah. in the minority. And they joined together and, and they pass a bill of religious freedom in Virginia that kind of ends up serving as a model for first the federal government when we get what's now the First Amendment, and then other states eventually adopt this to where— Okay, religion politics may still intermingle because everyone's religious and they don't know as a secular sphere. What we now know as secularism was not as uh, much of an option back then. But at least at the level of ecclesiastical leadership and political participation, there needs to be a wall between those two things. Yeah, this is where the metaphor of this wall of separation comes in. But at the same time, you get still people drawing on these previous models. And I use in the book the example of Thanksgiving sermons. Now, today we think of Thanksgivings as these benign holidays where families gather together, watch football, and eat turkey. It's still federal holiday, right? Right, right, and federal holiday. Back then, Thanksgiving days were much more haphazard. Uh, Some years would have them, someone, it would be a present, would decide, hey— the next thir- the second Thursday of February, we're going to celebrate as a day of Thanksgiving. And the president would then give out a proclamation saying what America should be thankful for. What if there weren't any football games scheduled for that day? Uh, there'd be a lot more time to talk about politics. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, and that's what they wanted to do, that's right? right? Yes. Right. That's what President Washington, the first The thing president, we say not to do now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't that's what talk they about politics. To do. This is what George Washington would do. He'd give out a proclamation saying what America should be grateful for. And by the way, the things they should be grateful for are his political positions. <laughs> yeah. And then say, hey, all you local ministers, gather your congregations together, read my proclamation, and then deliver a discourse on what you're thankful for. Yes. I, who who could be an ingrate and not participate? Right. Yeah. Right. And so what I did is I went through and I read a lot of these local Thanksgiving sermons that are given by these ministers to see what's happening. And what I find is what they're doing is they're already using religion as their cudgel to beat 
their particular politics. President Washington would be quite general in his religious views because he recognized that America has lots of different religious I mean, he's uh, the first backgrounds. president. He, yeah. he was sort of trying to set yeah. that as an example. Exactly. Right? So he would say, like, we need to thank the divine father of America or the providence that guides us. But then he'd find at the local level, we're like, we're throwing this abstraction out the window and we know what he's talking about. Yeah, we'll specify Where it. ministers are like, no, he's talking about the God in the New Testament. Just so there, there's no question. Did deists and other people and free thinkers try to argue against that and say, look, he's not using the language of the New Testament? Because it seems like you could also argue the other side and say, this is right. the language of some free thinkers and people no. like that. They did not have a public voice yet. They, I mean, to be a deist or a free thinker was to be seen as a bad citizen okay. and a threat to society. So you did not have access to the press. There but, are a few people that did. But Washington but, still wasn't empowered to use more specific language. No. And, and and you'd find this anxiety at the local level. One of my favorite Thanksgiving sermons given in 1795, and I talk about this in the book, this minister spends the first few pages of his sermons reaffirming to his congregants that Washington's proclamation is not bad. He's saying, I know you have a lot of problems with this proclamation because it does not specify the God in the New Testament, because it does not specify Jesus Christ, because it does not quote the Bible. But but don't worry, he, he's just doing this for PR reasons. Right. In reality, we all know America is this Christian nation. And oh, by the way, we need to be thankful for, and this, as an example of how they'd blend the politics and religion, we need to be thankful for how America brings liberty through order. That Those words kind of don't ring to us as much today, but those words were basically like a political campaign phrase. Mm -hmm. For the Federalist Party. It would be like saying, make make America great yeah, it, again. It'd or... be like going to a sermon today and to where the minister would say, we as great children of God need to make America yeah, great again. It'd be that so obvious. Where, right. To where you wouldn't have to specify that, oh, by the way, support this politician right. or this political platform, but wink, wink, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And this is already in place in the 1790s. So this is why religion could really be a double-edged sword for the early American experiment, because... While most political theorists, philosophers, and citizens believed that a successful nation depended on some kind of national morality as fostered by religion, so most people would agree, we, we've got to have religion. But at the same time, then, religion could also cause a lot of unrest and division. Right. And what are some examples of that? Remember, these festivities are supposed to promote union. And in the end, they're kind of highlighting this disunion that's yeah. already in place. So you got some New England ministers who, 1794, we have what's called the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, where the, a, a group of, of citizens are upset with the direction of the federal government, especially the taxes, one of the taxes on whiskey, which is where it gets the name. But There's that, still a line in Hamilton about it, and there that, was going to be a whole right. thing about it, but Lin-Manuel Miranda cut it out. Just That's, for, that's an aside. Go yeah. on. <laughs> so... You'll get some of these New England Thanksgiving ministers during Thanksgiving sermons in 1795 saying, we thank God that we don't face the same political extremism that those in Western Pennsylvania face. And define New England, too, for people who aren't yeah, specialists. Yeah, people in who so live like, in Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. And, they're, and, and they have a pretty settled religious right. sphere, and they're looking at other people and saying, right. <laughs> in fa in fact, thank they, you that we're so— Right. Peaceful In here. fact, to show how the languages transition, they would often refer to the nation of New England mm, mm -hmm. because we share our religion together, because we share common principles and values. Now, of course, that paper is over the fact that there was deep political division in New England right. and, and these Federalists 
who are in control in 1790s are going to lose control the next decade. They can but, pretend like it's united. They have right. the channels of right. power. They have the exactly. press. Yeah. But yeah, and they're also, these New England ministers are, are casting an idea of this national covenant that America is going to survive because we share these religious principles. And the, But the way they frame it, you can also, you can read between the lines where they're saying, but those people who don't share these principles are not part of this covenant and are therefore not true Americans. Right? And so these seeds of, of division are already in place within their religious rhetoric of what's supposed to be a, a festivity celebrating American Union. And let's zoom in a little bit on this idea of covenant. So what, what were they saying that covenant looked like and how were people disagreeing with that? Right. So they would quote from the Bible about God choosing the house of Israel and the house of Israel choosing their God and then following specific religious principles, worshiping God a certain way, reading the scriptures, following these biblical traditions. And by doing so, God is going to bless us as a nation, as a country. But if we don't live up to those promises, we no longer have that support. And, and they'd you also, face destruction at that yeah, point. Yeah, and you face destruction. Yeah. And they'd also emphasize, however, but if America, you know, falls under condemnation, those that, fa- that, that are going to face the problems are those who aren't living up to this covenant, i.e. those in Western Pennsylvania who have embraced a, a political radicalism that do not match what we believe to be a divinely ordered system of government. And how were they responding then? If, if you know, So down in Pennsylvania, you would get most of these uh, Thanksgiving sermons uh, celebrating not religious unity and religious covenant, but religious uh, freedom. That we thank God that we have the ability to worship what we please and practice the religion of our choice. And that is what regenerates our religious society. We're not like those in New England who are telling you, dictating you how you're supposed to worship. We, we know that the true American spirit is found in the energy of agency. Did both claim allegiance to Puritans? Because like the idea, a lot of people today have this idea that the Puritans came over here to escape religious persecution and to establish a nation of religious freedom. But they came here to establish a holy nation that had very strict right. rules and all of this. So how right. did each of these, how did these competing groups tie right. their heritage back? Well, New Englanders would, would draw on this long tradition of Yes, John Winthrop and the Puritans who came over believed in religious liberty, which does not mean the liberty to practice any religion. It's the liberty to practice the true religion, Mm -hmm. right? That's what true religious liberty is Mm -hmm. in their minds. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Pennsylvania, they're founded by a bunch of dissenters. And they're Mm -hmm. like, no, we are the competing model to that. We, We believe that religion can only be truly experienced when you choose it on your own accord. Without hypocrisy and coercion. If, If you are told what to believe, then you get no benefit for believing that because you're just doing what you're told. Rather, the religious marketplace and this kind of capitalistic language you'd find in a lot of these Pennsylvania sermons, this religious marketplace allows us to be true Christians because we are choosing it without any pressure. And how did these competing religious ideas inform how they thought the government should work? Right. So you could see that in in Pennsylvania, we believe in a much more localized political participation. We need to listen to the voices of these disparate groups, and we need to carve out space for those who might have difference of belief. We believe that that can work within a federal governance. In New England, we believe, because drawing from these ideas of a national covenant, we need to have people believing the same thing. We need to have these shared values. And if we don't have these shared values, we don't think this nation is going to work. So the way that 
this is going to apply into politics is we need a strong, energetic federal government that makes sure that everyone is is taught the right things and follows the right laws or else our national covenant is going to fall apart and America is going to be a byword. So this is going to surprise, I think, some people who try to map these debates onto contemporary political right. parties and disagreements. This is an idea that the, the people who favored a strong central government were doing so because of their religious right. principles. Exactly. Because they are projecting their values on a national government. And they want the national government strong enough to then, in turn, project those values onto all of its citizens. Hmm. It's kind of a reciprocal relationship there. Yeah. And you also show some of the differences, for example, between Massachusetts and South Carolina, the way that religion and religious ideals played out there, where Massachusetts was sort of forward-looking and seeking moral uplift and progress, South Carolina, by contrast, would use religion to sort of try to freeze the status quo. Right. Religion teaches you your place in society. Religion is going Including to... Including depending on what color your skin yeah, was. Yeah, absolutely. So you get ministers at, at this time, prior to the, the 18th century, Slave owners would rarely allow their enslaved populations hear about Christianity because because slavery was not uh, so much about race as it was about civilization. And they believe that if we taught our slave civilization, they can't be slaves anymore. However, this changes in the 18th century with these developing notions of of racial distinctions to the point to where we want to teach our slaves Christianity. Because that's going to teach them to be docile. And an obedient. Yeah. Obey your masters. You are to obey your masters like Christians are to obey God. And you have and you're black because there's this right. curse that you have been marked with right. and this is all in God's providence. Exactly. Meaning that religion provides a model to keep society where it's at. Rather than progressing, rather than developing the characters, religion is what keeps the masses in check. We'll talk more about slavery in a minute here with Benjamin Park. He's an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. And he's doing some research here at the Maxwell Institute this summer on Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, and the Mormon experiment in that state and how Mormons felt about democracy and developing sense of nationalism. Okay, Ben, so America's political experiment was off to a really rocky start here, as as we've been talking about, and it was about to get even rockier. Uh, I'm thinking of Abijah Bigelow, who is someone that you feature in the book. He's one of many people who were sounding the alarm, like, we're in trouble. And during a Fourth of July oration that he delivered in 1809, he said that the nation was under threat in two big ways. Number one, foreign influence, and number two, internal factions. What was going on? So the first decade of the 19th century was not going well for New England Federalists. Those who, uh, the election of 1800, Jefferson sweeps into office, Republican Democrats take over from the Federalists. And this is like party of the people, less central control. Right. He's kind of an outsider. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The yeoman farmers rather than centralized uh, uh, authority. Um, And- Federalists in New England, and it should also be noted, they're losing power within their own state as there's an upswing in Jeffersonians in New England as well. They're starting to see that our values aren't represented at the federal level anymore. You get lots of uh, of worry that we're never going to see another president from New England. Yeah, they Dis- wanted a strong yeah. central power, but yeah. now someone in, in central yeah. power that they disagree with, and uh-oh. Exactly. That, and, and this is where I, ideas of like states' rights over federal power often come from. Is in the what, north. In, in the north. Uh, yeah. And, and so during this period, you get the first arguments for states' rights in New England. 
what really jumpstarts this is is the War of 1812, a second uh, big battle with Britain just a couple decades after the American Revolution. And we're recording this podcast on the anniversary of James Madison declaring war against against Britain. Happy so anniversary. That's right. So so it's a, a very serendipitous. Yeah, serendipitous and appropriate. Yeah. So and to New England, the war. Oh, and we should say it's the 18th of of June. That's right. Yeah. So New England sees this new war with Britain as the epitome of their voice no longer being heard at the federal level. They like their relationship with Britain. In fact, you you get a strong connection during this period between New England Federalists and uh, Britain. They're saying we're proud of our Anglo-American heritage. We share more in common with London than we do in Philadelphia. Their market is based on trade with Britain. and Follow but, the money. Yeah, but the federal government is growing increasingly upset with Britain for two reasons. One, impressment. Uh, Britain is at war with France during this time, and Britain, whenever they find uh, American sailors who had previously been British, they would impress them into the British Navy because in the British system, there is no process of becoming an uncitizen, right? If you're once a citizen of wow. Britain, you're always a citizen of Britain. So if we come upon you, we're going to list you and into the British Navy. Were there Navy. more sailors from these other areas? Yeah. Sort of, yeah I mean, so they would care more because yeah. it's affecting them. As well as America wanted to stay neutral on the conflict and we're going to sell goods to both France and Britain. And Britain isn't recognizing that right. Britain is saying, no, you need to just support us right. and not others. Don't support the enemy. So American leadership gets to the point of where, okay, we're going to declare our war against Britain to reassert our rights of sovereignty. They're also doing this. I mean, the two public reasons are, are the neutral trade and the impressment. The two private reasons is they're also convinced that Britain is helping Native Americans in the West uh, retard the American advances. And so the Natives can't be beating the Americans on their own. So they must be being supported by the British. And second, Americans are like, yeah, those— and Just to be clear, that's the racist uh, justifications yeah, they yeah. gave and not the yeah, position exactly. of Professor Park. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it, it shows the limited imagination of those in early America yes. that they could not even conceive of these native tribes forming a formidable response. And then there's also these Canadian territories just north of America that Americans are like, hey, why aren't they American? Disregard the fact that they chose to remain British during the American Revolution. But America's like, no, we're going to use this war to annex. Yeah, there's land and stuff Canadian up there. Yeah. So this war kicks off. Uh, the first year was horrible. They designed three fronts to attack Canada and annex Canada. The only place they really uh, succeeded in getting an armed force they lost and then they couldn't even really raise armies for the other two fronts because New England's like we're not supporting yeah. this war. What was and re, you also say religion was a big part of the story too. There were different parties that were employing biblical texts and theological arguments right. to favor different positions in the war. What was right. that looking the, like? The same ministers who just a couple decades earlier were using religious defenses for the American Revolution were now giving sermons saying, "No, we're pacifists now." Or, or at least we're only allowed to, to perform war, do warlike acts, when it's justified. And this War of 1812 is not justified. This isn't a just war, and therefore we're not going to give support. So you get 
And they would cite biblical texts and all of this. Yeah, and they're saying this war is detrimental for America. It does not reflect our values, so we're not going to support it. So America does not get the support it needs from New England during the first few years of the war. And so America is is losing. They start having more victories the the next year in in, in 1813, mostly in the West where Andrew Jackson and others are kind of just attacking Native American tribes regardless of whether they support the British or not. But then again in 1814, when Britain finally finally defeats uh, France and they're able to turn their full attention to America. America's on the run. This is when Britain goes in and burns down Washington, D.C., including the White House. And America is in uh, deep straits. And it's at this point that New Englanders are like, oh, now's our chance to pounce. So they gather together in what's called the Hartford Convention. Yeah, this really brought things to a head and uh, became sort of an embarrassment. Yeah, so they gather in December of 1814 in in Hartford, Connecticut, and they come up with a series of proposed amendments to the Constitution. Basically amendments where they said, if you want to have continued support from us, and we know you're going to lose the war unless you get New England support, we want these amendments to the Constitution. And these amendments reflected their views of what the American nation should be like. Uh, Amendments like no more Western expansion because these Western territories don't share our interests or values, and they're kind of diluting our voice in national Right. In uh, in a democracy, you add more people to the pool who disagree with you, you lessen your own power. They also uh, have an amendment of limiting immigration, or at least the voting rights of immigrants, saying that these people coming in, who often vote Jeffersonian, uh, we don't trust and we don't see them as part of the American body, so we want them excluded from from voting. Uh, And one more example is they said, we don't want successive presidents from the same state. And they say this because three of the first four presidents are from Virginia. And they say Virginia does not reflect our interests. So we don't want any more Virginian presidents back to back. So these Hartford uh, uh, proposals kind of reflect a a possible uh, different direction of American nationalism. America not so much as an imperial empire uh, taking in more people and trying to balance more interests and more a nation based on shared values of the original 13 colonies that, that, uh, that seceded from from Britain. Now, uh, due to their rotten luck, their proposals (laughs) arrive in Washington, D.C. the very same week that word comes that Britain has decided to sign a treaty ending the war. War's over. Don't need you. But against the the British generals, they're telling the the British parliament, hey, give us a few more months and we have this one. Uh, These American colonies might be British again if you just give us a few more months. And Parliament is like, no, we've already spent too much money. Um, we, we just want to get up. So they, so they sign a treaty that says status quo antebellum, which is Latin for same status as before the war. So nothing changes. So if you remember, America went to war for to kind of reaffirm that, no, we have neutrality rights and we have impressment rights. They get neither of this out of this, this document. They just get a promise of the end of the war. And then the very next week after we they got get, a national anthem out of it, we got a national anthem out of it. And then the next week after they get the Treaty of Paris, they get word that Andrew Jackson won the Battle of New Orleans, which is their only real military victory during the War of 1812. Disregard the fact that it took place technically after the war was over. They just hadn't received words yet. And now it seems like not only is the war over, but we won the war. So I often, I frame it to my students as the War of 1812 is a war we should have lost, we technically tied, yet we celebrate like we won. And we got a great song. And so out of this, 
um, the Hartford proposals, instead of seeing as a compromise, are seen as treasonous. You are willing to depart us at our moment of need. We're now victorious. So the Federalists, that is their last grasp of power. They're, they're kind of on their way out from that point on. And this new American empire nationalism is triumphant. America is, we are finally uh, firmly planted in our independence. We are sovereign. We are going to keep expanding. And the vision of, a, of America as an empire is the dominant vision that comes out of this conflict. Yeah. And so what people can take away from this part of the book is this idea that American nationalism, you you say there were nationalisms, it's plural, right. there were different possibilities, different right. visions, and different things could have taken place. It wasn't this inevitable march to where we are today, but rather this right. very contextual, helter-skelter sort of give and take that was going on all along. And if British Parliament in 1814 had decided to ta take a different path in handling that war, American nationalism <laughs> might have been completely different <laughs> following that year. <laughs> That's Ben Park. We're talking to him about his book, American Nationalisms, Imagining Union in the Age of Revolutions. Slavery ha receives a lot of attention in the book as well. Two big issues. Uh, what did slavery say about national character? And could the federal government intervene in local institutions? You say those were the two big yeah. pivots uh, for this issue. So, other than the fact that the biggest pivot being enslaving other human beings. Right, and, exactly. Yes. So... It's important to note that at the very dawn of America, you get a deep divide within the American colonies over slavery. Um, slavery existed in all the northern colonies prior to the American Revolution. And after the American Revolution, state by state, these northern states end up uh, abolishing slavery. It's easier for them to do because slavery is not as entrenched in the north as it is in the south. And They're put that in into the, the Atlantic context, right. too. I think it's important for people to here, if they don't already know, America didn't invent the idea of doing away with slavery. Right, exactly. This is a moment of, of the, what we call the age of revolutions, the, these last decades of the 18th century, where democratic governance uh, becomes a, a question and different uh, nations are upending the political orders. There's a genuine question of what role does slavery in this? The Haitian Revolution, of course, pushes this, this question when uh, enslaved people in the French island of Saint-Domingue uh, fight against their their rulers and end up leading into the abolition of, of slavery, which France accepts. During this age, you're also seeing lots of people starting to write abolitionist texts or anti-slavery texts saying that, you know what? I don't think slavery matches our new ideals of what politics should be, and maybe we should abolish it. And these arguments are taking place in America at the time of the American Revolution. You have in Massachusetts, during the Revolution, a series of, of enslaved people going to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, bringing with them the text of the Declaration of Independence and saying, hey, this says all mankind are created equal. What's going on here? And the Massachusetts Supreme Court goes, you know what? You're right. And they abolish slavery. Hmm. And so there's a genuine, so there's a divide within America. Why uh, was it easier there? Like, why did it happen there? And why did why did Britain be, uh, begin abolishing it when the right. South didn't? Like, what what were the differences? There? Um, the northern economy isn't as dependent on slave labor. They have a much more diversified uh, marketplace. So you uh, think it was somewhat self interested? Oh yeah, definitely self interested. It, it, the context of self interestedness can allow space for you to to recognize the moral incongruity hmm. of, of slavery. Hmm. Um, and Britain, it helps... But except for, for, like, there were slaves themselves who right, recognized right. it at the, that fundamental level. Right. Exactly, you, exactly. You talk about them in the book as well. Yeah, exactly. And then in Britain, it helps that there's no slaves in England, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a dissonance. Yeah. Now, 
I don't want that to lessen the British moves toward abolition because much of their global economy was dependent on slave labor in Jamaica. And, so they uh, and did other. have something to so, lose. Yeah, they had a lot to lose. In fact, when they abolished slavery in 1833, their sugar production was arguably the most successful economic initiative in the world. And they decided to end slavery. And, that, and, that, and that's kind of a testament to the abolitionist movement and these black voices that that uh, that brought to their attention. So for, well, let's talk about those yeah. black voices. For yeah. a minute. Let's talk about what African-Americans themselves were saying during this period. Yeah. Equiano, a very uh, fam uh, famous uh, freed slave during this era, publishes an interesting narrative of the life of a slave. Uh, and he writes this in 1780s and 1790s and publishes it and which is one of the first texts that kind of explicitly argue hey the experience i had as a slave does not fit with your rhetoric of democratic governance this is wrong here's my witness of yeah. what it was like yeah and and so you got a rise of the of these black voices which is crucial now when i talk about uh, american nationalisms i'm often asked where are the voices in, in early America that kind of are prescient to today's nationalism? Because America today, uh, at least a large segment of Americans believe that American nationalism is equality before the law. Everyone have equal rights, equal opportunities. Who's providing that voice in early America? And almost without exception, the only people who are doing that are the black voices in early America. The most oppressed. Th those uh, people, I, I, I focus on James Fortin who was a, a free black man in Philadelphia. He fought in the American Revolution. He was a prisoner of war in the American Revolution. He became a very successful shipbuilder uh, in Pennsylvania. And he had a voice that he had he had a great voice and he would publish his his arguments and he became a, a national proponent of abolition not just on the principles that slavery is wrong although he certainly argued that but that the american principles of liberty required the abolition of slaves and not just the abolition of slaves but a shared governance of, of blacks and whites living together which was something that was rare during this time because you get lots of you get a growing number of people in early america recognizing that slavery is wrong, but they believe that the American nation only works with people of the same race. So As, make, the, make black people move to Africa or right. someplace else. Yeah. For example, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, He's he knows full well slavery is wrong. He's a slaveholder. Yeah, he's a slaveholder, and he knows slavery is wrong, and he knows that slaveholding does not fit within American ideals. He thinks it even corrupts individual character. Right. But he says that, A, he knows that his life is going to be a lot more difficult without slaves. And B, if we free slaves, he argues it's going to lead to race wars uh, because— Con Corruption of the national character, right. violence, and right. so on. White whites have grown so uh, 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 to detest black people, and black people in return are never going to be able to forgive their what was done to them. And so a mixed-race society isn't going to fit. And Thomas Jefferson is far from alone on this. You get a rise of what— it's called the, this colonization society to where we are going to end slavery, free African-Americans, but then we're going to force them to move elsewhere because they don't they don't they do not fit our imagination of what an American body should be. And even some African-Americans would say, yeah, we, we don't want to be around. Right. Especially since colonization, they thought provided the avenue for self-rule. Right. Because as long as we remain in America, our voices are going to be heard. 
And so some see that this colonization effort, and this is where the British efforts of colonization result in the creation of Sierra Leone. The American colonization efforts uh, end up in the, in the creation of Liberia. A majority of, of African Americans, of course, reject this plan. People like James Fortin, who argued that, no, 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 we bled and sweat to build this nation. It is wrong to not allow us to enjoy, uh, the, fruits. enjoy the fruits of it. And so colonization is wrong because it, it does not allow us to reap the benefits uh, of the work that, that, that African-Americans have, have performed. Our vision of America, therefore, is not only emancipation, but integration. So American nationalisms at this time were fracturing even further right. uh, s along some of the same fault lines, one of the biggest being how power is divided between states and the federal government. Right. And this is where a big switch happens between the North and the South. Right, exactly. Because in Pennsylvania, you start seeing people, before this, a lot of people will argue, okay, slavery is a problem, but it's a state's issue. It's something that, that can only be dealt with in the states. And starting this period, you see people, especially in Pennsylvania, start arguing that, no, slavery is a national issue. Slavery is a national sin. And if we are going to have the strong imperial government that is able to preserve order and liberty, then we are hypocritical if we are not using that same power to end the oppression of slaves throughout America. That Amer the American national interests are rooted in abolishing slavery. And if we can't do that, then that's not really the American ideal that we supposedly espouse. And they wanted f federal government would have to be the thing that right. made that happen because the South wasn't willing to right. make. So, and, and this is a, a transformation for a lot of politicians like in Pennsylvania, where previously Pennsylvania had kind of served as a mediating force in American political discourse because Pennsylvania itself had been used to lots of different interest groups living within the state. And we'll just kind of let them be as long as they share common orders. And so they would be seen by Southern states as they're not as zealous as the New England states. Uh, who are going to make us try to live like them. They're, they're more, you know, live and let be. Whereas now Pennsylvania is like, no, this is, this is an issue that we believe the federal government should solve. This is not, we're not just going to let the South have this slavery. This is something we have to care about. And things are really troublesome right now because we're only five decades into the American experiment at this point, and it seems like everything's about to explode into pieces. And I, to give people an idea of the scope, they were about as far removed from the War of Independence as we are today from 1970. So it's not that long. <laughs> right. right. And the South was attempting at this point a complete redefinition of what the nation was. Right. Like they have to present a, a whole new vision of what nationalism is and try to pretend like that was what was going on all along. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you highlighted that this was a redefinition for them. So, for example, South Carolina, one of the, the states that I focus on throughout the, the book, they start out being strong nationalists, believing that because they believe the federal government was the only thing that's going to preserve their economic interests. And as the South becomes more and more committed to uh, the cotton economy, remember the cotton gin is invented in the 1790s and that makes slavery much more profitable and it allows the American South to become uh, a strong economic machine on the global market. And they believe the federal government is what's going to preserve their uh, their trade as well as protect uh, them from, from pirates and uh, make sure that we get the most money for our cotton production. 
But what happens after the War of 1812 is with the spirit of nationalist fervor replacing the nation over the region, because remember, we're not like those New Englanders, Mm -hmm. they pass a series of, of economic tariffs where we need to promote northern manufacturing. And the way to do that is to tax incoming goods from foreign nations so that southern states stop relying on Britain for their, uh, for their you know, clothes and instead buy from New England. Southern states hate this idea, especially South Carolina, where they're like, no, our vision of America is based on international trade. Uh, we don't want to place New England commercial rights over our own. So we want to fight that. So you get this opposition between South Carolina and the and the rest of the states that climaxes in what becomes known as the nullification crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about what that crisis was. So what were people in the South trying to say the nation was? Yeah. In trying to abolish these federal tariffs, they they come up with this argument of of nullification, that the states have the right to abolish federal laws if those federal laws do not respect state interests. So they they, become sovereign over the federal government. And I mean, there's this complex mechanism that John C. Calhoun, who was the vice president for a while and then goes back to being a senator from South Carolina, devises. But at its root is an idea that the American nation is based in sovereign states. And these sovereign states are are tied together through this compromise. And they use the word confederation, right? We're a, confederate. we're a confederacy. Uh, we're not a united nation. And when they eventually have their nullification convention— and Nullification dis- is to say, like, we're, we're opting out yeah, of the whole American thing. We're ourselves now. Goodbye. Right. Well, we're nullifying laws. We're still part of America, okay, right? We're, they're, they're not arguing for secession at this point. We're just saying we can nullify federal okay. laws when it doesn't uh, uh, Yeah, the secession happened later. Yeah. We're pre-Civil War here. Yeah, this, this is the 1830s. And what's fascinating is when they have their nullification convention in December of 1832, they recognize that, well, we abolished these federal tariffs, which is what they do, and then they raise a militia to defend their decision. And then they also— Like you do. Yeah, like one, like one does. <laughs> and— they realize that we have to defend these actions to the to the America and to the state and to others. And so they write these series of pamphlets defending their nullification steps. And in these pamphlets, they make a novel argument about American nationalism where they say America is not a nation. They also argue that people living in South Carolina are not Americans. You are South Carolinians. Your nation is South Carolina, and you have attachment to these other states through a compact of states. There, the the kind of direct quote they say, there is not now, nor has there ever been such a thing as an American nation or an American citizen, only a citizen of South Carolina. Which would come to uh, as a surprise to many in the North and also to some people in South Carolina as well. And so what this is argument is we don't have to privilege national interests over our own. Those are not our priorities. Our priorities are what takes place in South Carolina. That, that's, we're just, a nation, they say, America's not a nation because a nation means people who share things in common. And our states don't share things in common. Therefore, it's not a nation. That leads them to doing the nullification crisis. Now, this ends before conflict. In early 1833, they come with a compromise. John C. Calhoun gets together with uh, Henry Clay and, and uh, the other senators, and they come up with a compromise that kind of appeases both sides for this time being. But you see that the seeds placed for, for sectional conflict here. In fact, one of my favorite letters from this period comes from a South Carolinian politician who writes during the midst of this crisis that says, look, I agree with these nullification arguments, but they're not going to work right now. We don't have enough power. We don't have a support. It's not until we get sister states who agree that this tyrannical view of nationalism is wrong 
and then we'll actually have enough power to uh, get what we want. And that kind of, you know, predicts what happens three decades later with the Civil War. Which is also funny because that's just a new sort of vision of a new federalism. Right, exactly. We (laughs) we have to make a centralized power. Right. And I mean, it it needs to be added that during the Civil War, the the Confederate States of America uh, act more as a strong federal power than the Union does. And it just kind of shows that th- that these arguments for 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 states' rights over federal authority are often just skin deep, and they're rooted in the federal government does not respect our interests, therefore it needs to be state interests. But as soon as the federal government does respect our interests, I don't care about what these other states say. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of gets into when, when people talk about what caused the Civil War later on, and they can say, well, it wasn't slavery, it was states' rights. And what do historians today make of that kind of a, of, a, of an argument? It was slavery. Uh, and, and it's also uh, disagreements over uh, how the nation is comprised. I mean, the, the first vice president and the first and only vice president of the Confederate States of America, when he gives his cornerstone address describing what this Confederate nation is, he says the Confederacy is going to survive much better than America did because the Confederacy is based on, on the true idea that nations uh, have to be rooted in a sense of racial supremacy. And, the, and America failed because it did not specifically dictate white supremacy. The Confederacy is going to succeed because it does. And to let people know that story is beyond the scope of, of American nationalism's Ben's current book. But there are a lot of other places that people can tap into that discussion as well. And it gets into a lot of things that are still being discussed in the United States today about monuments to the Confederacy in the South and other things like that. Uh, We're talking today with Benjamin Park. He's an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University. Uh, That's in Texas, Houston, obviously, uh, Sam Houston himself. Uh, Ben also serves as an associate editor of the Mormon Studies Review. I wanted to talk before we go about identity vertigo. Ben, we, we've known each other for a while, so I had the opportunity to kind of talk to you a little bit about my personal reactions to the book before we sat down here. And I feel like your book shows that ever since the beginning of this American experiment among the founders, the framers of the United States Constitution, the original citizens, um, free, enslaved, everybody— Everybody throughout this entire experiment, there were always competing visions about what the nation was at that moment and what it should be in the future. And these definitions and preferences changed over time, not only amongst the nation as a whole, but even between those those individual constituencies. So as I was reading the book and thinking about current circumstances, I couldn't help but feel a little bit of vertigo. Like, what is all of this standing on? Did you feel that way as you were doing research on this book? Yeah, I definitely did. And I, I think it's, it's one way to uh, highlight this vertigo is the fact that I wrote a majority of this book in a time when American nationalism, at least at a, at a, at a national level, was focused on diversity and inclusion. Um, America had features its first black president. Um, we're, we're seeing more diverse voices in, in, in all avenues of American culture. And then I finish this book and I, I do my final revisions and I write my epilogue in 2016 when you see a rise of nativist nationalism. That nationalism not as an inclusive principle, but nationalism as an exclusive principle. Nationalism that puts boundaries in place, that puts walls in place. And nationalism that believes that nations only exist with barriers. 
And so what this did for me is it is it showed that nationalism in itself is not on its own a positive good. Nationalism is a neutral principle. What you do with nationalism can be positive, it can be negative. I'm one who I love the 4th of July and going out and celebrating what I believe the true American principles are. But I'm also one who recognizes that, that I hate seeing people identify certain people as un-American or casting images of, of what they believe America to be in a way that excludes a large number of people who really are American. And it's usually people like immigrants or, right. or Muslims or right. people like this, minority. And so and so what, what I what really strikes me is that nationalism has always been and will always be a political issue, but one that should make us question what are the things we value? What are the interests that we that we hold close to heart? What are the things that we believe above all others? are what drive America to be. And, and I think that's, that's a question that we can't take for granted. We can't just assume nationalism means something. We are, with every generation, with every person, repackaging, reimagining what our American priorities are. And I think that's something that as, as soon as we stop focusing on that, uh, I, I, negative results come. Yeah, so you've come full circle. I mean, you're right back to the very beginning where political thinkers and philosophers and others were trying to define national character, think about what values should drive the American experiment. And, right. and, and it's both terrifying and exhilarating, depending right. on how that could shake out, because what it says is those visions and those ideals can change. They can be redefined. Right. Uh, right. And that can be good because it can lead to, to better opportunities right. for people, better equality, and, and, and healthier a healthier nation, but can also go the other way. Right. It can go the other way. And and it reaffirms that our rhetoric matters. Yeah. That our civility, the way we think about other people um, has a tangible effect. That whether we in our mind include certain people into our imagined nation has a direct link to the types of policies we we try to uh, implement. And, and I think those, those are things, that's why images of representation, that's why our language concerning people matter, because it's not just some abstract thing. It's the foundations upon which we build our literal nation. What do you think's holding it all together right now? Um, I don't see anything holding it together right now. When I, when I look at America, I see a fractured nationalist culture. I, I see people who are disagreeing not just on policies, but on foundational principles upon which those policies base. And, and, I, and I think the more that, that people recognize that we need to return to the basic principles and then move from there, I, I think the better our, our nation will be. What do you think the role of the historian, like your role, what, what's the role of a historian like you when it comes to contemporary concerns? You spend most of your time thinking about the past and teaching about the past and researching the past. I see my primary job to first show that these debates aren't new, that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and to show that both bad and good examples from the past, they kind of warn that, whoa, 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 let's be careful with this direction because let me show what that led to in the past hmm. and the problems that that caused. But also show, look, here are some positive examples. Here are some things in our American past that we can be proud of because they provide 
examples that we can replicate today. So I think showing that we have an intellectual lineage that leads to today and that we don't have to just try to invent something new, but that we have models in the past that, that could serve us well if we only turn to them. I, I think that's one of the, the key roles of the historian. That's Benjamin E. Park. He's an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. He's also an associate editor of the Mormon Studies Review, and he's the author of the book American Nationalisms, Imagining Union in the Age of Revolutions. Before we go, you're currently working on this book about Nauvoo. It's a city that was founded by Mormons in the 1840s, and you're talking about their views of democracy and how they fit in. Give us a really quick sneak peek. Where are you at in your research so far? Yeah, so it, it was a natural—at first I thought it was kind of odd to jump from my first project the Nauvoo, but the more I dig into it, the more I see the, the similarities that um, while I go really broad with my American nationalism book addressing the question of how does diversity fit within a democratic society, the Nauvoo project allows me to zoom in on one micro-history. How does one community experiment issues that arise with democratic order? And so with the Mormons— you get a group believing that America's democratic society had failed them. Their experience in Ohio, their experience in Missouri had led that we as a minority faith um, have our rights trampled upon by a majority rule. And so we need to find ways to save, to salvage, to redeem democracy. And so in Nauvoo, they come up with a number of mechanisms, whether it be through block voting, whether it be through moral reform, whether it be eventually through a, a theocratic control in the Council of 50. We need to find some ways to save democracy. Whereas those outside of Nauvoo see Mormons as a threat to democratic order that democracy is fragile enough that it can shatter if you get a large enough contingent of people who don't, in their minds, play by the rules of separation of church and state, of individual conscience. And so you get these conflicting views inside and outside Nauvoo that eventually lead to a, a clash where both sides decides that America's democracy had failed and we need to turn to extra legal justice to save us. And, and so that, 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 that's in brief uh, how the Nauvoo story, I think, builds on this larger uh, nationalism's uh, trajectory. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. How far out do you think that is? So I have about a chapter and a half left, depending on if that last chapter is one or two chapters. <laughs> and uh, I'm supposed to turn it into my editor in November this year. So depending on the amount of revisions, it'll probably appear late 2019, early 2020. Great. Well, we'll be keeping our eyes open for it, Ben. Appreciate you coming and talking to us on the Maxwell Institute podcast. It's been a joy, Blair. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Uh, up next, we'll have another great interview with Terrell Givens in his Maxwell Institute conversation series. Uh, before we go, let's check out the podcast review of the month. I have a couple of them here, actually, some short ones. Uh, and then I have a couple of quick announcements for you as well. So the first review comes from Marv Max. It says, uh, Blair's a great interviewer. The only problem with the podcast is that my reading list keeps getting longer. And that's also a good thing because many of these books I never would have heard of, much less read. Uh, thank you, Marv Max. Another one uh, here from Utah Longbow or UT Longbow. This is a great podcast. The variety of topics is fascinating. Guests and hosts are incredibly knowledgeable, and it has expanded my understanding of my faith. Uh, 
Thank you, uh, UT Longbow. And the last one here is uh, from Not Very Insightful, is the name of the reviewer. Uh, I don't know why they chose that name. Maybe they chose that name when they were reviewing something else. Uh, well, here's what they said. The tone and content of the dialogue here is enriching and inspiring. Thank you to the host and the guests for your work. Okay, everybody, remember, you can rate and review the show on iTunes yourselves. It just takes a minute, uh, but it does do a lot to help spread the show around. Um, Okay, a couple of announcements here. First of all, Janice Johnson is kicking off our new lecture season this October. She's presenting a lecture here at Brigham Young University called Becoming a People of the Books, Early Converts, and the Book of Mormon. Uh, Dr. Johnson is a Willis Center Research Associate here at the Institute, and her research challenges claims that Latter-day Saints usually overlooked the Book of Mormon uh, in in the church's first few years of existence. You you might have heard that uh, from researchers before. Her lecture is happening on Tuesday, October 2nd here at BYU. You can get details uh, about that at our website, mi.byu.edu. And yes, we will be recording that lecture, so if you can't make it, you'll be able to catch it on YouTube later on. Also, if you want to stay up to date on on what's happening here at the Maxwell Institute, you can subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't done that yet. We only hit your inbox once a month, uh, sending you news updates and and short stories about what's going on around here. I put that newsletter together, um, so you can go sign up for it at bit.ly slash maxwellnews. Uh, bit.ly slash Maxwell News. And one other quick thing, you can also follow us on Instagram. If you haven't done that yet, we're on Instagram. You can come see some photos uh, that I take and post on there. And uh, we hope to see you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thanks for listening.